Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. As many of you know, I was in Arkansas this past week, and at the tail end of that work, I was able to spend a couple of nights in Memphis, Tennessee, a city I'd not been to before. It's only an hour south of Jonesboro, Arkansas, where I was staying for most of the week, and the flight schedules out of Memphis were a lot more favorable to fly home, so I decided to spend a couple of nights in Memphis. I have to tell you, the live music and the food alone made me almost instantly love Memphis. I mean, listen, Memphis is authentic, Memphis is gritty, people are super friendly, but I have to say I'm really looking forward to spending more time in Memphis this year as my work in Northeast Arkansas is going to continue throughout this school year. So if you've got any recommendations for me or favorite spots that you love in Memphis, if you've been there before, please let me know. Thanks for listening in again this week, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. I also want to give a big shout out and thank you to those of you who've been with me from the start and making me a part of your week each week for the last year or so. As the listening audience grows, I know that there are some of you who have been with me right from the start since episode one, and I just want you to know how much I appreciate your support. Now, this is, of course, episode 48, and so as we fast approach episode 50, I am this week going to announce the two-week contest as a way to celebrate the upcoming 50th episode. Let me tell you first what I'm planning on giving away as a prize for the winner, and then I'll tell you what you need to do in order to qualify to win. Now, once you know the prize, then you can decide if you want to participate or not, or whether it's worth your time and effort. So the winner of the contest is going to win 12 hours of personal coaching from me, personal assessment coaching. I'm thinking something like, you know, an hour a month for a year or something like that. We'll figure out how to divide the time. I tried to think about, you know, what would be the most valuable thing that I could give away, and it really came down to my time. So 12 hours of personal assessment coaching for you, free of charge, no no strings attached, but you're going to have to work for it a little bit, okay? Now, full disclosure, uh, the purpose of this contest is also to try to create a little bit of buzz around the podcast and expand the listening audience. So we're going to try to utilize uh, social media to do so, okay? So here's what you have to do. And before I explain it, I want you to know that all of this is going to be detailed in the show notes. So just take a scroll on that and you'll understand and have all the details that I'm about to uh, explain to you. So the first thing you have to do in order to enter into the contest is post a picture on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, or even TikTok. Yes, the podcast is on TikTok. But make sure it's not just a story, like an Instagram story, because those disappear. There needs to be a permanent record of it, right? So a post on a social media platform, um, you know, and and post a picture of what you typically do while you're listening to the podcast. So for example, if you're using Twitter, you might say something like, um, hey, at Tom Shimmer Pod, I love listening to the podcast while I'm on my commute to and from work. And you post a picture of being stuck in traffic or something like that. Or, Or, hey, at Tom Shimmer Pod, I love listening to the podcast while working out. So then you post a picture of yourself um, or the the treadmill or the elliptical or something, whatever you're doing, right? Now, you have to tag the podcast. Make sure you tag the podcast, the podcast handle so that, you know, I can see it, that I I get to see it, that it doesn't get lost kind of in a feed. So make sure you you tag the podcast, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, Twitter, uh, even TikTok. Okay, so that's the first thing. You got to post a picture of what you typically do when you listen to the podcast. Now, second, and here's where it's going to be a little bit of effort on your part over the next two weeks. You have to get at least 12 people in the next two weeks to subscribe to the podcast and post about it. 
right? So 12 hours of coaching, 12 people. So it might sound something like this. So you get your friend or your colleague who's subscribed and, you know, look, we're going to go on the honor system. I'm going to assume they subscribed, but they're going to post something like, um, I just subscribed to the at Tom Schimmer pod. Thanks. And then they tag you. They say, thanks, you know, at my best friend uh, for the recommendation, right? So they don't have to post a picture or anything like that. Certainly cool if they did, but they just need to tag me or the podcast. They should tag, tag the podcast and they should tag you in that post so I can keep track of that. It's really important that I get tagged in that and that the podcast get tagged so we can keep track of how many posts, right? If you can get 12 people to do that in the next two weeks, you'll be entered to win the 12 hours of coaching. Now, if more than one of you manage to accomplish this and you don't win the 12 hours of coaching, I'm going to figure something out for you because that kind of good deed uh, on behalf of the podcast cannot go unrewarded. So we'll figure something out for those who are able to accomplish that, but don't end up winning the 12 hours of, of coaching. So look, I know maybe no one will even want to do this and, and that's okay. You know, I understand everyone's busy. I'm just trying to expand the podcast listening audience and trying to find a way to reward you, the listeners, uh, for being here, sticking with me, and, uh, and and seemingly liking what you're hearing. So I, I really do appreciate that. We'll see how it goes. And if it goes nowhere, it goes nowhere. Um, and and we'll, we'll do what we can do. So again, check the show notes for the process. But the key is to make sure that the podcast gets tagged and that you're following the podcast accounts, depending on what platform you're using. And that way, um, I can keep track of that. So today in the podcast, we have part two of my conversation with Doug Reeves. This week, we focus on leadership. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to focus on the importance of relevance in assessment design. Okay, so that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Part two of my interview with Doug Reeves is coming up. But first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a bit of a rant against this growing trend of edu-divisiveness that I'm seeing, and I think it needs to stop, and it needs to stop immediately. Now, I saw a post on social media recently that went something like this. And look, I'm not really interested in calling out the individual because it could have easily been, in this one case, a simple mistake or a misuse of a word. And if that was the only time I ever saw something like that, I probably wouldn't say anything. But at least from where I sit, I'm seeing this more and more. And here's the gist of the post. The post was basically a question. What's one thing administrators and superintendents need to know about educators? Come again? Uh, since when are administrators and superintendents not educators? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, clearly they meant teachers. But did they? Do words matter or do they not matter? Half the time we're being told, words matter. And then when it's inconvenient, we're told, come on, Tom, you know what was meant. Look, either words matter or they don't. But back to the point. Since when are administrators and superintendents not educators? No, they're not in the classroom. That's a teacher. Regardless of what role one serves, we're all educators. And I, for one, am kind of growing tired of this divisiveness that pits one role in education against the other, especially on social media. Now, many of my close personal friends are principals, but when I worked with them, they were classroom teachers and some of the best teachers I have ever worked with. 
Some of them are still teachers today because they have teaching responsibility as part of their principal duties. So what exactly are we talking about here? You think that they just forgot how to teach or what it's like in the schools? I mean, they're in their schools every single day, as if they don't know what's going on. I mean, each and every one of them cares deeply for the people they work with, and they want nothing more than for their school to be a great place for kids and a great place to work. Just because the occasional decision doesn't go your way doesn't mean they're not listening. This caricature of the ivory tower school administrator who has no empathy, no social awareness, has no pulse of their staff, and just sits around all day scheming for how they can stick it to classroom teachers, that caricature is ridiculous. Now look, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't ineffective and downright awful administrators out there. There are. Superintendents too. Of course there are. But we can't go around holding those exceptions. And yes, they are exceptions. We can't go around holding those exceptions as the norm and then start posting about them as if they're a monolith that has lost complete touch. That's not the norm, and everybody knows it. How about this? How about if your administrator or your superintendent is that person, then go talk to them. Isn't that the advice you'd give your students? If you have a problem with someone, you go talk to them. Now, if that's too intimidating for you, and I understand that, if you're new to the profession or it's not really in your personality, then certainly there are mechanisms for you to carry that out. There's union reps, there's staff councils, more experienced veteran teachers who can help you navigate through that. But you know what's not going to help? Here's what's not going to help. Subtweeting that person on Twitter. If you're tweeting now about administrators and superintendents in the abstract, like they're not anyone that you work with, then it seems to me that you're trying to cynically manufacture an issue for the purpose of attention and retweets. Again, one post and I would have let it go, but the number of things I see people posting about that are constantly trying to drive a wedge within the system seems to be increasing by the day. Maybe that's just me, maybe I'm the only one noticing. I get it, everyone's tired. This has got to be the most intense year and a half to two years any of us have ever experienced. But turning on each other is not the answer. Driving a wedge is not the answer. Teaching is an incredibly challenging job, but so is being a principal. So is being a superintendent. The decisions that they have to make are intense and they have wide-reaching consequences. Well, Tom, that's why they get the big bucks. Anyone who has ever said that has never done the math on that expression. Look, I know there are principals out there who abuse their power and lead, or at least attempt to lead, with an authoritarian approach. They, they try to lead with power. I know there are superintendents out there who have lost touch and really don't put kids first. I know they're out there, and that has to be handled. So in the case of a superintendent, school boards need the courage to act. They don't necessarily have to fire the person, but they need to interject and do something to make sure that this superintendent doesn't continue to create a culture that is counterproductive. In the case of a principal, superintendent, you need to act. Again, not saying the person needs to be fired, but something needs to be done if morale is being affected in that way. Yes, look, I know those superintendents and principals exist, and I am in no way, shape, or form defending them. But you know what else exists? How about the high school teacher from Riverside, California, who thought it good pedagogy to mock indigenous cultures during a math class. The teacher wore a plastic headband with paper cut out feathers to look like a headdress, was seen in videos jumping around the room screeching Sakatoa, which is a shortened phrase for teaching trigonometry, and doing the tomahawk chopping. 
How about that? Should we start tweeting about that incident in generic terms? Like what teachers need to know or how come teachers do this? I'm sure that teacher's principal and superintendent are just thrilled with all the media coverage and all of the fallout that they have to deal with. Yes, principals and superintendents always have to expect the unexpected. But I think this is one where we could all agree that that was probably on the not in a million years list. Now listen, of course we should not be talking about that incident in generic terms. That person does not represent teachers, not at all. But that's my point. They don't represent the norm, not even close. I know an aspect of work that is timeless and in every profession is complaining about your boss. I get it. But this divisiveness on social media is at best misguided and at worst it is performative. Principals and superintendents are educators. They serve a different role in the system, but the vast majority of them, like teachers, have students at the center of every decision they make. Now, you may not like working with them, and you might disagree with some of their decisions, and you may not even like them personally. That's okay. That's the way it goes. That's life. There's nothing wrong with that. That's going to happen. Principals and superintendents don't always agree with what teachers do. They don't always like working with every single person. Personalities clash, all of those. That's going to happen too. That's allowed. That's life. That's called being an adult. The point is that at the end of the day, we have to resist this inherent need to create an enemy. We have to resist the temptation to regress to our most primal instincts, where we feign this helplessness in the face of a bad principal or superintendent. If you are experiencing that, they need to be told in, un in no uncertain terms that what they're doing is counterproductive to your morale and to staff morale. Over the last 20 months, and I would say this probably about every single profession, most of us are secretly happy that we were not the ones having to make the actual decisions about remote learning, mask mandates, and all the other COVID-related decisions. Sure, we have a lot of opinions and ideas, but that's easy. To have an opinion to which there is no real accountability is a much easier proposition. If your principle is being ineffective and it's impacting morale, then we owe it to them to talk to them and help them grow professionally, come with ideas. Remember that conversation I had with Jennifer Abrams last spring? We have to have those difficult conversations. They are necessary. Yes, they're challenging and they can be intimidating, but they are necessary. But if you don't have firsthand experience with someone like that, but are just trying to generate attention on social media, then just stop. Okay, the work of teachers and administrators and superintendents is hard enough without someone manufacturing another so-called wedge issue for the purpose of generating social media content, retweets, and attention. Let's do more to bring us all together. Okay, education, especially public education, takes it on the chin from society on almost a daily basis. That is a tough enough fight on its own without this artificial infighting that in the end most definitely puts kids last. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. I want to pivot now to leadership and change, as I know that's something you also think deeply about and have been very influential about. And I've seen throughout the course of my career, this shift from leader as manager, 
you know, to this idea of instructional leadership. So I'm wondering for you, Doug, when you hear the term educational leader or instructional leader, what does that mean to you when you think about a K-12, 21st century learning experience in schools or an education system? Well, I, I really appreciate the way that you phrased the question, because there, since Abraham Zalesnick originally wrote the leader versus management, uh, leader versus manager article in the Harvard Business Review more than 40 years ago, we've been told that leadership is, is about creating this, this vision and articulating the vision and communicating the vision. And I believe all that. However, one of the things that I'm noticing is that we neglect management at our peril. Because when you look at school leaders today, they are spending a ton of time on project management, people management, time management. And if they say, all I want to do is the leadership stuff, then you know who, who's left to uh, make sure that we have a safe and secure environment, that we have an aligned curriculum, that we have sound assessment in professional learning practices. So my evolution uh, of, of my own thinking is that, is that the visionary leadership is great, but it cannot be a substitute for the technical skills of management that we still need. And I, and I see too many graduate programs, frankly, diminish those skills where you can ha have a doctorate in education leadership and still not be able to organize a master class schedule or give people good feedback or align curriculum. And I just got to tell you, that's as important as the visionary stuff is yeah. as well. So would, would you favor then, just in terms of terminology, would you favor educational leadership to include both you know, curriculum instruction, but also personnel. When you think about educational leadership, there is an art to managing personnel. And, and I don't mean that from the cynical sense of control or anything like that, but there is, I have worked with some principals over the years that were just masterful when it came to creating work environments where teachers felt inspired. So would that be maybe a more favorable term for us to use given, you know, the evolution of the thinking is to, to call ourselves as leaders, educational leaders to include those management um, pieces that you say are so important. Absolutely. And it's not just creating the environment. I agree with you on that, but it's also the nuts and bolts of things like providing effective feedback. Right. Um, most, most district and state, and, and I won't speak for the provinces in, in Canada, but most mm -hmm. official evaluation systems uh, just don't accomplish very much. I've never seen anybody get evaluated into better performance. I've seen a lot of people get coached into better performance. Mm -hmm. And that's what, pardon me, that's what effective education leaders do is that they give feedback in a way that provides coaching and a cycle of continuous improvement. Um, but you don't learn that in an HR class, and you certainly don't read that, learn that by uh, studying HR manuals on, on how to evaluate people. Right. And I would argue the same is true with respect to things like time management and project management. That seems so mundane. And yet if we really expect leaders to, to have the time to engage in what Georgetown professor Cal Newport calls deep work, then they've got to be able to organize their tasks and their projects in a way that allows them to do that at some other time than 10 o'clock at night, which is when I see the timestamps on emails coming to me from educational leaders. Right. Uh, so I know it's not terribly popular to talk about these mundane notions of time, projects, people, but that's the essence of what allows you to be a great leader. Yeah, it certainly doesn't grab attention on Twitter. It's not the sexiest part of, of leadership, no doubt. But uh, I think you make a very important point, which is we can't take those management tasks for granted, that there is a skill and an art to them as well. So maybe it's the idea of expanding what it means to be a leader, as opposed to trying to create this zero-sum game where if I'm, I'm either an instructional leader or I'm a manager. But you, you and I both know that when you get onto social media, you know, what 
nuance doesn't sell and certainly creating dichotomies is what really gets people's attention. And so it's the leader versus manager type of narrative that that often, unfortunately, I think drives this conversation. I think I think the point is well taken. Um, when it comes to change, uh, listeners, you might recall from last week that uh, Doug had talked about how we should not be seeking buy-in. I want to come back to, to something you said last week, Doug, which is the idea that when it comes to change, I've heard you say this many times that you know the idea of the three to five year plan and buy-in need to be replaced by this concept of short-term wins and passion. Um, so why is it important for leaders to shift that focus? Why is it important for short-term wins and igniting passion within those they lead? Why is that the more, I suppose, beneficial way to approach change in any school or, or district? Well, one area that John Cotter and I certainly have found common ground on is the need for a sense of urgency. Uh, I have phrased it, and this was even true before COVID, but especially during the shutdowns associated with the global pandemic. Uh, we've got a building on fire. There's children inside the building. We need to evacuate the building. We don't need a task force. We don't need a study. We don't need a five-year strategic plan. We need to evacuate the building. And, and I, I use my analogies with care here because I really do think that student success is a health and safety issue. Mm -hmm. If there was a disease in uh, 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 affecting our children, we would react, as you've seen in the last, teen, last 18 months, vigorously and directly. If there was a threat to bus safety, we would react vigorously and immediately. And yet when it comes to improving literacy, reducing the dropout rate, improving pedagogy, that's the stuff that always takes five years. Here's why it's a safety issue. The data are unequivocal that students who don't complete K-12 education have higher health risks, more involved in the criminal justice system, have much higher incidences of poverty and unemployment. And that is not a one-year problem. That's a 50-year problem. Yeah. And, and so the children that we are failing to serve now are 50 years from now still going to be unemployed, still in poverty, still making greater use of the healthcare and criminal justice systems. That's why I've got a sense of urgency. And that's why I have zero patience with people who say, and I've heard it as recently as this week, well, you know, Tom, we'll get around to that grading stuff, but that's part of the five-year plan and we'll finally implement it in grade five. We're going to continue to have toxic practices and failures for four and a half years before somebody gets off their duff and actually makes it happen. I got no patience for that. Yeah, it's I, I couldn't agree more that uh, there there does come a point where that urgency, um, not, not necessarily to create panic in people in terms of, of change, because it, it does take people time to unlearn some habits. But I'm with you. I think there comes a point where we have. So how does it, how does a leader let's let's pick up on that a little bit here. How does a leader get to a place? Because obviously you need uh a group of educators, you need your colleagues, you know, a leader stands in front of a faculty and, and makes an assertion about the urgency. How do we get to the place where teachers are going to listen to that message and follow that message? What can leaders do to cultivate? Because you can make all the assertions you want to, and yet you may not have people in the building who are with you. So how do we get to that place where you can make those kinds of assertions and, and teachers will be, okay, this is the work we have to do. Let's roll up our sleeves and get there. Well, there, there's two things. Number one, that the change model that I found most effective is, is inside out change. And that is you start with a small group where they demonstrate, they can read all your books and all my books and, and everybody else's, mm -hmm. but that doesn't prove it's the, the, the objection you always hear is, well, prove to me it's going to work here with our kids, with our school. So fine. The inside out change model, uh, we call it the science fair for adults is where that small group will say, I'm going to try for example, a four-point scale instead of a hundred-point scale. I'm going to try not grading homework. I'm going to try mm -hmm. fill in the blank here, 
And in a very short period of time, literally one semester, 90 to 100 days, they'll be able to say, this is no longer external research. I've proven it works with our schedule, with our bargaining agreement, uh, with our culture. I know it can work with our kids. Then you have inside out change. And that's, that's how I've seen change take place. So yeah. I think it starts with getting those short-term wins. Yeah. However, there's other things I think we can do to accelerate it. And one is to remove the default. If you've got, for example, an electronic grading system that allows or even encourages toxic practices like the average, turn the darn thing off. Yeah. You know, th those are things that we are empower empowered to do. And I think sometimes our own technology, and that's just one example, uh, the same thing is, is true with Bell schedules. We've, I, I've asked people around the country, do you have the same schedule in the fall of 2021 as you had in the fall of 2019? Because if you do, you're telling me that COVID never happened, that right. shuts down never happened, and I don't need to change the schedule. So some of these physical things, like schedules, like electronic systems, really undermine it. Yeah. But finally, Tom, I would just say this, you know, um, perhaps only a very few people on this call can remember the days when faculty lounges were gas chambers, because that's where all the teachers went to smoke. <laughs> and one day they said, you know what? The secondhand smoke is killing us. We're not going to allow smoking. And I can flat tell you, none of the smokers in the faculty lounge had buy-in on that decision. Yeah. But we did it because it was a matter of health and safety. You know, 19 states, I hope none of the provinces per permit corporal punishment. We've had a half a century of evidence that says it doesn't work. And if you raise your hand to strike a child, we're not going to have a debate about your academic freedom to beat kids. You just don't do it. Right. And that's why, you know, I, I hate to sound so heavy handed about this, but I'm really tired of debating the obvious. Sometimes you just got to make the decision and go. Sometimes you got to push forward. I, I have um, and I believe I picked this up from you and credited you with you with this uh, question. Uh, so I hope it was you. Um, but I remember uh, years ago hearing you say there's a second question, you know, what's the risk of changing? But the second question is, what's the risk of not changing? Yes, sir. What is the risk of not moving forward? Am I right that that was you? That, yes, sir. I, yeah, no, I think I'm, you've said I'm that. I'm sure I'm not the only one who said no, that. No, no, but that's where I picked it up from you, which which is a very important question, I think, to ask about assessment, about grading, about anything that we're trying to implement, which is what what are the risks? And sometimes we don't think that. So how do we get how do we get to that place? How do we get people to think about the risks of not changing? Because the status quo is often very comfortable for people. So how do we, how do we move the needle on that? Well, it, it is. And also, to be completely fair, the status quo worked well for us. Right. I mean, everybody in our profession is a college-educated, successful professional. And God bless them. We're lucky to, to, to have them in, in the classroom. However, every time I say, well, I'm going to use what worked for me and attribute that to all of my students, the question ought to be, what percentage of my students are going to become public school educators with a university degree? Because mm -hmm. if it's south of 100%, then we've got to stop assuming that what worked for us is, is going to work for, uh, for all of our students. Moreover, things, you know, not just technology, but, but pedagogy and other things have changed and has improved. I, I loved Rick DeVore used to stand up in front of audiences of thousands of people and say, I just want to stop and apologize to my former students mm -hmm. because I wish I, I knew then, you know, what I know now about effective teaching and to his dying day was always trying to become a better and better teacher. I think that's a great model for, for all of us. Yeah, it's uh, you talk about the apology, certainly in the first five to six years of my career, toxic grading practices was my middle name and the the things that I used to do. So you're right about that. At, at some point, um, you know, you you have to just keep growing and 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 thinking about what is the risk of, of staying there? I, I love that. Now, how does a leader know? So a leader is 
let's say a leader is thinking about they've they've been to a few conferences, they've read a few books, and they're starting to have the epiphany that they know that their context needs to change. How how would they know that their context is ready for that kind of change? You know, again, the leader might realize that there's a change we need to undergo or implement, and they want to put a guiding coalition together. They want to start to begin this whole process, but they're not sure, is, is my context ready for me to make that assertion? So how can leaders determine whether or not the context is actually ready for that kind of definitive assertion about here's where we need to go? I, one of the things that I learned in working on this new project on implementation um, was in medical science. How do they do that? How do they make changes there? And they have a process in medical science called de-implementation. Before you start to implement something else, a new pharmaceutical regime, a new surgical procedure, I've got to decide what I'm going to stop doing. And that makes, in the medical science context, tremendous amounts of sense. Why in the world don't we also have de-implementation as, as what we decide to do? So to answer your question directly, Tom, first thing the leader's got to do is to decide what he's going to stop doing. Mm -hmm. And I fear too often our, our leaders are a lot better at adding things to the plate, at having the new vision. As you said, they go to the conferences, they read the books, they add new things, but they're not very good at saying what we're going to stop doing. Right. It, it's such an important part because I don't know any teacher that's not busy. You know, we're, we're all busy in education, and yet some can be more effective than others with the way they utilize those minutes and, and certainly the ability to stop things that are not producing desired results, things that are not sort of producing the kinds of impact that you're looking for. That's a hard question because again, we all, I think, get comfortable, but I think an important one as we think about, about change. So um, I wanna broaden the lens a little bit here to uh, research in general, because I know that um, the, the pursuit of change is often sourced from educational research, the latest findings. And yet, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I find that many, not most, but many educators have a kind of fickle relationship with educational research. They like the research that supports their perspective and their opinions, and they reject the research that does not, right? So when they don't like the change, it's where's the research. When they when they like the change, they can be dismissive or, or things like that. And we know that educational research is never ironclad because of how challenging it could be uh, in its, in its uh, you know, development and, and conclusions that we draw. So I'm wondering, what is the healthiest relationship that educators can have with educational research? What, what would that look like? I think the direct answer to the healthiest uh, perspective is skepticism. And, and unfortunately, a lot of leaders hear somebody as a skeptic and they think, well, they're just being negative. So I want to draw a clear distinction between the skeptic and the cynic. The skeptic says, show me the evidence. Because I've seen 25 hot deals in my career come and go, all supposedly research-based. I am a skeptic. I want to see the evidence and not just one study and not just one commercially tainted study. I want to see what I've written about called the preponderance of the evidence, mm -hmm. an intersection of quantitative, qualitative case studies, meta-analyses, syntheses. That's what, when I see different researchers operating independently, coming to very similar conclusions, then I'll take it to the bank. But I'm never going to rely upon one study. The way I express it is I'm just a pebble on the mountain of research and mm -hmm. people should be skeptical of us. But once they see the intersection of multiple methods, independent operators, different venues, rural, urban, suburban, in my case, different countries all coming together, then I think you can start to, to believe it. Uh, but I, I don't expect anybody to be persuaded by a speech, a book, or a researcher. They ought to look at the preponderance of the evidence. Right. So when there's conflict in the research, 
when we see sort of different conclusions, I'm going to use use an example here, but I, I don't necessarily want to, to have this conversation be about these two individuals. But let's take a topic like homework, for example. If we were to put Harris Cooper and, and Alfie Cohen in the same room, they would not agree on the assertions about homework. And so educators are, are faced with like, what do I do in that situation when I see that that there is there are prominent researchers, people who are prominent voices in education, who have fundamental disagreement about what the research says? Um, and again, I don't want to. I just use those two as an example. Um, but what what how should educators approach that when they see there is disagreement in in the in the research fields? Actually, I, th I think that's a perfect example on on homework. And part of it is is whenever you're going to ask a question about research, we have to make sure we're phrasing the question correctly because mm -hmm. the disagreements about homework really aren't about homework. Where there's common ground, if Alfie Cohn were standing right here, he would agree kids need practice. And I suspect that the advocates of homework would all say they need practice. That's the common ground. So mm -hmm. then the question is, what's the best way to get practice? And typically it's with feedback, with coaching, with immediate reinforcement, with the opportunity for revision and improvement. That never happens at home. Mm -hmm. so, so the homework controversy really is inappropriately about homework. It ought to be the question, what's the best way to get practice done? I think everybody agrees on that. And unfortunately, too many people think the only way to get practice is assigning homework. I, I think that's not supported by the evidence. And by the way, just props to Alexandria Neeson, who synthesized 37 studies on homework. So instead of dueling one person against another, she was a wonderful example of the preponderance of the evidence yeah. to say, let, let's look at the bulk of the evidence. Homework has zero impact on achievement, she found. Yeah, sometimes we have to, um, you know, look at the body of evidence and draw general conclusions, even if there is some nuanced disagreement uh, in, in terms of the approach. And so that's that's a great example of putting it all together. And, and like you say, looking at the preponderance of evidence. OK, uh, two more questions as we finish up here in part two. Um, and the first question here that I want to go to is about the future of education. So I'm wondering, Doug, from your perspective, what exciting breakthrough or tipping point is on the horizon for K-12 education that most of us aren't seeing or maybe we are underestimating? So what are we collectively on the verge of from your perspective and why should we be excited about it? Well, I am the eternal optimist here and, and one of the great uh, breakthroughs is this brand new 21st century uh, idea called human teachers. Um, mm -hmm. If we've learned anything in the last 18 months, it is that the whole idea that technology will save us, technology will disrupt education, technology will render all of us irrelevant. Well, that hypothesis has been tested and found wanting because only a small fraction of students during the pandemic really thrived with technology. There are some who did. They were probably thriving before that, mm -hmm. and they were uh, and, and as a result, uh, their, their thrill of using technology alone has been validated. But for the vast majority of students, more than 80%, it was a colossal mistake to assume that a Chromebook replaces a teacher. Mm -hmm. So my hope is in the future of a profession that values relationships, that values human beings, uh, and that even those kids who are uh, a techno technologically uh, have, have a high affinity for technology, they need to have human relationships too. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's one big idea that I think I, gives me enormous hope for the future. I just don't know that I had any experience over the last 19 months or 18 months before things began to open up a little bit more. I don't have, remember one professional learning experience that I conducted on Zoom where anyone said, this is better. 
no one, I mean, it worked and, and we needed to use technology because we were in acute, acute situation and technology can certainly be an enhancement, but you know, I'm, I'm with you on that. The idea of, of those connections and, and the, the, the human interaction between the teacher and the student, the face-to-face situation, um, certainly taking the best of that and being able to add in technology as, as a way to enhance the experience. But, uh, so you, from your perspective, you think that it's almost what we're on the verge of is almost, uh, uh, a kind of renaissance, a, a short-term renaissance with the idea that being in the same room face-to-face is still the best experience for our learners because of that, um, that human Un- connection. Unequivocally, yes. And, and to, just to be clear, I wish I could say it, it's, it's when I'm the teacher, it's the magic connection that I make. But the truth is, it's the kids connecting with each other. Yeah. And it's not just what happens in my classroom. It's what happens in the hallway. It's what happens on the athletic field. It's what happens in on, on, on the stage when they're in the drama club. All those things are elements of human interaction and relationships that are a vital part of what school does. And that doesn't happen online. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly, we, there's a lot of places to learn now with YouTube and, and uh, lots of online sources where it's easy to learn things. And yet, why is it that the school experience can be so enriching? I, I agree with you, those, those relationships and those connections that, that the students make with each other, with their teachers, just that whole environment to me is something that I never thought the assertion that technology was going to overtake education. I never really bought into that. Um, speaking of buy-in, uh, I never really thought that that was where we were going to go. I always sort of thought of as, as an enhancement, uh, uh, the way that we can enhance that experience. Okay, last question as we finish up here. Um, and this is a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, and it's a very simple question about success and happiness. And the question is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, in, in my case, um, I actually would, would not say happiness. I have a wonderful friend who's a psychiatrist who is fond of saying happiness is all, not it's all cracked up to be. Uh, okay. Life is full of challenge and, and difficulty. For me, um, success is, is a life of meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have been lucky enough to have uh, mentors and friends and family members uh, who, who exemplify that. And so uh, I don't wake up every day uh, asking myself, how can I be happy? I do wake up every day saying, how do I live a life of, of meaning and purpose? Yeah, that's, uh, I think, a, a, a good mantra for all of us to follow. How do I live a, a life of meaning and purpose? And, and how do I bring that uh, to all of, all of that I experience on a daily basis. Uh, listeners, if you are not following Doug on Twitter, then again, I'm not sure what you're doing. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle is at Douglas Reeves. Uh, you can find also find Doug on LinkedIn. And I really want to encourage you to check out the Creative Leadership Solutions website where you'll find blogs, videos, resources, information about events, and so many other great pieces of information about Doug, about the team there at Creative Leadership Solutions. That's www.creativeleadership.net. Doug, Uh, I really can't thank you enough for joining me today. Uh, Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Uh, Best to you, and I hope our paths will uh, cross along the uh, trail soon. I would look forward to that. Thanks, Doug. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk for a few minutes about the importance of relevance in assessment design. Now, relevance is often a term you'll hear after the word rigor, as in people will make reference to rigor and relevance when they talk about assessment design. However, There are other features to consider. When Cassandra, Nicole, and I talk about assessment design along with our assessment team, we often talk about it 
in terms of rigor and relevance, but we also talk about things like alignment, you know, making sure that the assessment is aligned to the standards and aligned to what we've been teaching. We talk about fairness and equity in terms of access and making sure that we remove bias in the assessment's design. We talk about reliability, where we think about whether or not the assessment is a consistent measure. And we talk about clarity. Are, are learners, are all learners clear on the task, what's expected of them, what the criteria is, et cetera. So there's, there's a lot there when it comes to assessment design and relevance is just one of them. Now relevance is important because we want our assessments to matter to our students. We want it to be important to them. And our assessments can matter to our students to varying degrees. You know, when we think about relevance, we often think about a deep, meaningful connection. You know, that the learner sees what has been learned and therefore what's being assessed as relevant to their personal life, relevant to their interests or their passions, that there's this deep connection to them personally. Now, that, of course, is going to have limits because not every student is going to have a deep connection to every subject, let alone the topics found within that subject. That is an unrealistic ask. Human beings do not have a deep connection to everything. So no matter what kind of song and dance we put on, there is going to be a cohort of students who may not buy it completely. That's not them being cynical or lazy or disengaged or anything like that. It's called being a human being. But that said, seeking relevance and assessment is a desirable goal. If the potential for a deep, meaningful connection to their interests and passions are there, if, that, if that's there, then we want to try to uncover that. And this is where maximizing student investment comes in. So for example, through inquiry-based opportunities, we nurture their curiosity and hone their investigatory skills by developing a driving open-ended question. Students will then seek to find a solution or draw a conclusion or solve a problem. Now, typically we can assess the outcome of that, but at the same time, we often want to assess the process, right? The investigatory opportunity itself. Like, so we will assess the question. We'll ask, you know, the question about, was their question a good open-ended question that authentically needed answering? Was it a why question or was it a curiosity question or was it something that's just factual? Was their research thorough enough? Did they consider every side or every potential you know, pathway toward a solution? You know, did they create a plausible solution to draw a reasonable conclusion? Or, or, or did they create meaning? And, and what was that meaning? Was their hypothesis tested? You know, maybe they tested their hypothesis in a collaborative setting where others were able to give them feedback and help shape and reshape their ideas. And of course, there is, after the fact, there's all of the different angles we could take with reflection. So the idea of assessment being student-driven, student-created, student-designed, etc., because they themselves want to know how they're doing, they themselves want a measure of themselves, that would be ideal. But if you can't or don't achieve that level of connection, you haven't failed, okay? And we need to stop talking about it in those terms. Deep relevance may not be plausible given the student's relationship with the subject, you know, adults openly admit, sometimes to a fault, that they have no interest in certain topics or subjects. So know that that's likely to be the case with students as well. I mean, look, I'm all for personalized learning and personalized assessment, but that doesn't mean we're at the mercy of the potentially daily idiosyncratic whims of every student. You know, relevance could also just mean need. 
the assessment's relevant because it's assessing what the students need to move forward. Or if it's an end itself, so to speak, it's what they need foundationally. So if that's the case, we need to make that crystal clear to the students so they can see why the assessment matters. It's something they will need. So again, relevance doesn't always have to be that deep, meaningful connection. Sometimes this is just important. Relevance, again, can also be something they need down the road. So later in the semester, later this year, it's that building block. So we're giving them a glimpse into the future when they might put more of this together, right? So relevance can also be something as simple as a foundational piece very early on in the learning, right? Something as simple as uh, and somewhat random as lowest common multiple. You know, to the student, it feels a little random. Lowest common multiple, who cares? But when we can show them that lowest common multiple is the way we find common denominators, which helps us add and subtract fractions, which of course leads to us being able to solve problems and solve equations and solve mathematical dilemmas, which of course is what engineers do, it's what mathematicians do, it's what scientists do, it's what a whole host of professions do, right? So formulas, definitions of key terminology, et cetera, those are examples where you might not get this deep, meaningful relevance that might elude us, but we can still help the students make the connection through the assessment prompt or the experience. We can help them see the relevance, right? The bottom line is that we do have to find a way to connect the students to what they're learning. So the relevance, at least to some degree, is there. We want them to see that this is a relevant thing that they're learning. Now, if our assessment prompts and our tasks and exercises that we develop with relevance in mind, if we do that, if we keep that in mind as we develop those tasks, there is, of course, an increased likelihood that students will see that relevance, find that relevance, or even create that relevance for themselves. So a challenge for you this week, maybe it's a reflective question, the idea of how intentional are you about relevance in assessment design? And if you recognize there's room for improvement, what do you think you can or should do next to enhance relevance for your students in their assessment experiences in your classroom? That's all for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also email the podcast if you've got questions for Assessment Corner, you've got suggestions for guests, or any other ideas you want to hear about or content, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Check the show notes for the contest for the 50th episode, 12 for 12 contest. That's what we'll call it. That has a nice ring for, ring to it, right? 12 for 12. We'll call it the 12 for 12 contest going forward. Next week, my guest will be Pav Wander. Pav teaches grade 7 and 8 in the Toronto area. Many of you will know Pav as one of the hosts of the Staff Room podcast, as well as The Drive on Voice Ed Radio. We're going to explore teacher voice as the main kind of topic of our conversation, so look forward to that. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. That's where it matters a lot. And contest or not, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I really do appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Have a great week, everyone.